It's been about 15 years since the fall of the wall and Eastern Europe won its freedom. What was it like for the last generation to be raised under communist ideology? And how are they adapting to the rapid changes in their societies today? Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll take a trip down memory lane with some people who grew up under communism. What I remember is reading articles in newspapers that oranges for Christmas are coming to Poland from our Cuban friend and that they are just one week away. We'll talk with Marjan Kreskovich and Tina Hiti, who were raised in the former Yugoslavia. And we'll chat with Kasia Derlicka, who grew up in Poland. When you have already this experience back in the years of communism, and when you see some things which are happening in today's world, uh, it is hard not to draw these comparisons between some of the things that were happening and they are taking place today. Growing Up Under Communism, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're going back right now to before 1989 when half of Europe was under the rule of the Soviet Union and communism was the way of life. I've got with me three former communists, Kasia Derlitska from Warsaw, Poland, Tina Hiti from Slovenia, and Marian Krišković from Croatia. Thank you all for joining me here. Thanks. Thank you. Hi. Did I get your names right? Yeah. 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 Pretty good. <laughs> Not really. No. Kasia Derlitska. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, thanks for joining us. And um, all of you are... Well, 1989 was the year that communism fell. Is that right? Yes. How old were you when that happened? I was 13 years old. You were 13? Yes. Same me. 14. 13 and 14. You were all teeny boppers. So you yeah. grew up in little uh, <laughs> kindergartens with red red vests and red flags. Yeah, more or less, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you were old enough to know what was going on as communism was falling. Tell me just a bit, a little bit what it was like in 1989, uh, Kasia, in, in Warsaw. In 1989, we actually didn't realize that was the end. It was just after the so-called roundtable talks started by Solidarity and Lang Valenza together with the government. So the opposition would sit on one side of the roundtable, the governments would sit on the other, and they would agree that for the first time we will have a partly free elections. And what that meant, there was a certain number of seats reserved for the party. And we say for the party, it means the communist party, the only, the one and only party. And the rest would be, you know, free available. Huh. And in June 1989, the party did not win a single seat. They just had the number reserved and they did not win a single seat. So it was a big and voice that, Yes, that people. was a clear sign. These days are over. Did your parents know this was about to happen? My parents, uh, yes, my parents realized it much more than I did. But actually, in general, the people did not know that that was the beginning of the end in the all-Soviet bloc. Nobody knew that. Now, Marianne and Tina, you were in a place called Yugoslavia at the time, right? Yeah, which was a lot different. When did Yugoslavia fall apart? Well, Yugoslavia fell apart in 1991. So two years earlier, communism was falling down. Yes. What do you remember from those days? Well... I remember, you know, we had the president whose name was Marshal Tito, and I think most of the Americans have heard that name for sure. And when he died, basically in 1980, things started falling apart slowly because he had this, you know, he kind of kept the republics all close together, you know. But it was a lot different than when I talk with my friend Kasia here, with my comrade Kasia here. It's, um, it was a lot different in Yugoslavia because we could always travel. We never had any restrictions of traveling. You guys had that goulash con. No, that was Hungarian. But yeah. you guys had the uh, third way or what yeah, Tito was Yeah, the third way, and that was Tito's way. And it was and a little bit of private enterprise. Yes. Certainly independence yeah. from the Soviet Union. Yes, definitely. More so. And mm. Poland, on the other hand, you, ha- you had the brunt of it. You guys were like Yes, that. we had the, the hard part of it. But And I remember when we thought about Yugoslavia during communism, for us, Poles or Czech people or Hungarians, Yugoslavia was you know almost like the West. It was the paradise to go. Yeah. You mm. know, everybody in America is so excited about traveling in Eastern Europe now, but I enjoyed traveling in Eastern Europe before the fall of the Iron Curtain because it really was a challenge and it was an adventure. And I was a window on the West. People would have me into their homes, and uh, they would run their um, faucets mm-hmm. while we talked, so no, so the neighbors couldn't hear. The walls were oh, thin, yes. yeah. and they would keep mm-hmm. the water running, so so I could talk. And we would change where we slept every night, 
so nobody was in danger of being captured, having mm-hmm. a Westerner in their house. Now, maybe that wouldn't be a risk in Yugoslavia. No, it was quite different since... Yeah, but uh, see, the, I was in Romania and Bulgaria. Yes. That's where I'm talking about, and probably in Poland, too. So it was this high adventure for the, for the American traveler. Well, uh, yes, the main difference was that uh, Yugoslavia, although it was a socialist, communist country, it was never part of the Eastern Bloc, so directly under the influence of Russia. And they clearly renounced any kind of uh, Russian uh, ties in uh, '48, so immediately after the Second World War. You guys were a thorn in Russia's side. They wanted Pretty much, to, they yes. wanted to hold Eastern Europe in lockstep. Exactly. So it was basically a socialist country, but with a Western orientation. Now, did in Kasha, when you were little, did you know these Yugoslavs were like uh, not o- obeying? Yes, we, I mean, we knew that, you know, Yugoslavia is the place to go. Yugoslavia <laughs> is the piece of freedom. Is that right? Because yes. you could actually go there. We could actually go there. So okay. that was the only place, you because know, a bit of a taste of, of yeah. the West. 1980s, mm-hmm. the bit of the little taste of freedom. I remember mm-hmm. taking a friend of mine from Prague. She was going to Budapest because Budapest was like more like Yugoslavia. You can get mm-hmm. Western magazines. Mm-hmm. You could go to McDonald's. I remember we went to a Bruce Springsteen concert there <laughs> before the fall of the curtain. And uh, it was just, I took her, I, I have to, I'm, I feel a little like, I don't know if this is good or bad, but I enabled her to have her first McDonald's hamburger. And no. that was Yeah, I know. And that's why she went to Budapest because that's where the first McDonald's was. And it's kind of funny because that was fast food, but it wasn't really fast food in Budapest at the time because you waited around the block, a line around the block mm-hmm. to get to that hamburger. It was slow food, but it was West food. And people would walk down that street and just look in the windows at Nikes and Reeboks and all sorts of Western mm-hmm. sort of goods. A bite of freedom. A little bite of freedom. So that was uh, Hungary and Yugoslavia were the windows on the West, really. And you guys could, from Poland, you could travel there. We, we could, yes. So that was, that was your window mm-hmm. on the West. The only window. And, and during those periods, I mean, everybody, it seems like the vacationers went to the same place. In, in Poland, you went to Zakopane. Mm-hmm. And in... Uh, in uh, Bulgaria, you went to Varna and the Black Sea coast, and Hungarians went to Lake Balaton. And these were the prescribed, you work hard, you go to vacation together, you stay in a big hotel, you have fun, you go back to work. Is that kind of how it was? Yeah, this is more or less how it was. Uh, people shared a lot together at work, at their free time. And uh, I see a lot of positive aspects to it. Yeah, let's talk about, you You got youthful memories, and a lot of people are experiencing what we're calling nostalgia, nostalgic about the old days of before the fall of the Iron Curtain. Uh, tell me some of your fond memories of growing up under communism. Well, it was actually a very joyful, peaceful, and very happy time. Uh, we didn't have the sophisticated toys as iPods or, uh, you know, <laughs> those kind of things. And uh, and in this way, we did not need to compete over those kind of things. We had very simple toys, a ball or some simple game. Everybody looked the same. We all wore the same clothes. You well, had we have to have a uniform. We had the rationale mm-hmm. in parochial schools here in America, mm-hmm. in a Catholic school. Uh, all the boys and girls will wear the same thing mm-hmm. so they don't have to compete So in this, this way, way it was similar and it made our life, I think, much more joyful and, 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 and nice. And I remember from my childhood that my parents had also had this sense of security. There was not such things as worries about whether you will have a job or not. Everybody had a job. There was not unemployment rate in Poland, in the, in all the Soviet bloc. Was your family wealthy or were they just normal working class family? I would say middle class family. Mm-hmm. Actually, you didn't stress classes so much during communism. Everybody was equal. Everybody had very little and and people had to be very creative to organize things. So you had special treats that right now might be taken for granted. Yes. Like tell about Christmas or something. <laughs> special treats. I could start with a very simple thing as for example a toilet paper. I remember that one of the biggest greatest gifts for a birthday or, or some kind of celebration was to bring a big amount of toilet paper, which was in great deficit and which was always hard to get. And for Christmas, what I remember is reading articles in newspapers that the oranges for Christmas are coming to Poland from our friend Cuba and that they are just one week away and we will have oranges for Christmas from our Cuban friend. So the but, whole nation was waiting for yes, Cuban oranges to yes, arrive. Yes, and that's why Christmas was, was so special, because you get to eat oranges only once a year. And the same was with chocolate. All the year through, we had so-called chocolate-like products, 
which was dark and smelled chocolate, but it didn't really taste. Chocolate-like <laughs> products. That yes, sounds very suspicious it. to me. <laughs> when did you get real? Did you ever get real chocolate then? For Christmas. For Christmas. It was for Christmas. For Christmas, the, the shops were a bit more uh, well-equipped, and you could go and, and buy something real and good. Do you think they subsidized ice cream? Because I always felt like certain things were made cheaper and more affordable to keep people happy and, and licking something or whatever. I mean, I, I remember when I was in Moscow, the ice cream was just great. Mm-hmm. I mean, didn't they, they, they price things in a way that they could control how people consumed? Certain products were definitely uh, much uh, cheaper than uh, they should have been. I mean, with the absence of a ma- market economy, there was no real uh, – it, it, the price did not depend on the supply and demand. It was what uh, the party would make of it. So if they decided that a certain thing would keep people happy, they would make it very cheap and available, of course. And conversely? And uh, yes, of course. And if you wanted to buy something that everybody didn't need, you'd really pay. That's right. You would pay um, a lot. In general, it was the same as uh, Kasha mentioned with the unemployment rate. It didn't make any sense employing all those people, even if there wasn't any need for uh, additional labor force. Uh, if you could uh, just, I don't know, stamp your finger to the desk, you would be employed in an office and you would be an office clerk and you would have the same salary as a doctor or somewhere else and you couldn't lose your job. So if you worked or didn't work, it was all the same. Wasn't there a notion that if you worked with your hands, it was sort of the the most noble kind of work and you'd actually be paid at a higher scale than somebody who worked with their brains? Of course, the whole notion and concept of a uh, communist uh, socialist economy was based on that only... Um, industries that actually produce tangible goods are good and valuable ones. If you did intellectual work and so on, it wasn't as appreciated. So a travel writer? Not really. (laughs) I'm lucky I live here, I guess. (laughs) So you have this full employment, but in actuality it was kind of shared poverty. Did they share jobs? Is that why you have this cumbersome way to buy some goods in a grocery store? Oh, basically four people did the same job as one person does it now. So what was it like when you went into a little shop and you wanted to buy a a bottle of uh, soda pop? Oh, it was a big procedure. So first you would go to the counter and tell to the clerk what you want. Then they would send you to another clerk and he would charge you for that or basically just write on a piece of paper how much it is. Then you would go to another clerk and pay for that thing and he would issue another ticket and with that ticket you would go to the first clerk again and then you would get your soda if you're lucky of course so no unemployment but really not much employment either yes More with Marian, Tina, and Kasha as we talk about growing up under communism on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm talking with Kasia Derlitska from Warsaw in Poland, Tina Hiti from Slovenia, and Marian Krišković, who is a Croatian. And we're talking about what it was like to grow up um, before 1989 in what is now Central Europe. You remember, Americans think Eastern Europe, but that's sort of an anomaly. Uh, that's a 50-year uh, aberration caused by the Iron Curtain. And uh, most of what we think of as Eastern Europe was actually Central Europe. It was Habsburg Europe, and it just happened to have that 50-year uh, period or whatever when it was under the uh, sway of the Soviet Union. Today, once again, Eastern Europe is Central Europe. On May 1st, most of the Warsaw Pact, uh, May 1st last in uh, 2004, most of the Warsaw Pact joined the European Union. The geographical center of Europe shifted almost overnight from Belgium uh, to about the Czech Republic. And today, much of Eastern Europe, or what we call Eastern Europe, is uh, on the fast track to getting the euro and being part of the European Union. Were there like... uh, problems when somebody, I, I heard in the Soviet Union when somebody worked too hard, it was if they worked too good and, and they would actually raise the ex- expectations among other workers and they could become unpopular. Well, anything that stuck out was not seen as something good in a communist society. So probably, especially after some attempts of uh, uh, people like in the Czech Republic or Hungary and different or Poland and different times to um, get rid of that kind of regime and uh, the Russian influence, they um, ended up with the probably highest rate of PhD window washers in the world. Really? Yeah, basically thinking in your own way, any kind of individuality, and like I said earlier, sticking out was not desired. I had a friend who was quite intellectual during these days in Bulgaria, and he was writing these very important papers and studies, but everyone, it was a lot of remarkable free thinking, but he would start each one with the disclaimer, and it would say something like, uh, in my endeavor to explore the truth and put things together for the betterment of my society, I acknowledge that I may be doing something wrong, and if anything I come up with challenges the basic truths of communism, it is my mistake, and I apologize. You know, is that sort of a, a preamble to any free thinking he did? Do you remember situations like that in, in your studies? Well, yes, there were often formulas used in any kind of public uh, speeches, documents, and so on. We use, I don't know, death to fascism, uh, um, uh, greet the people, whatever, to kind of uh, make uh, that kind of feeling of uniformity in any kind of, uh, um, I don't know, writing or any kind of public uh, appearance or speech that uh, could in any way uh, appear as uh, challenging the, challenging the, or, the yeah. standards. And it wasn't a lot of the communists' uh, ability to hold on. was It was that against fascism. Didn't they always celebrate, you know, you, we took you from Hitler. We saved you from Hitler. Therefore, this is the answer. Yes, especially this, this kind of propaganda was very visible in Poland. Just after the war, there were a lot of monuments, plaques, uh, race, just saying, you know, how terrible fascism it was and, and what a great liberation we received from our brother, the Red Army, the Soviet Army. Because um, Liberation Day was really something. Yeah, that was the liberation. Mm-hmm. And this is how it was called in all our school books. I remember being at school and learning a different version of history that we learn today. And, uh, of course, everything was censored, as, as Marion mentioned, all the books uh, but you have to remember that there was also underground uh, publishing and there was a lot of books smuggled over the borders and people would sit late in the night with a big magnifying glass and would read this very tiny, uh, tiny books from the West. Wow. In a way, I, I also today I see that media in let's so-called old free democracies are also quite, let's say, uh, limited, restricted, censored. Well, in our country, we have self-censorship. You see, you don't need to mm-hmm. censor because you censor yourself. Mm-hmm. And that keeps so, us in line. So this is, this is just an interesting way, you know, when you have already this experience back in, in, the, in the years of communism and when you see some things which are happening in today's world, uh, it is hard not to draw these uh, comparisons between some of the things that were happening Sure. that time and, and they are taking place today. If they had a vote in Eastern Europe today, and you guys, you guys do tours all through Eastern Europe, and uh, would, would, it be, how, would anybody actually vote for the old ways again? Are there some people that are nostalgic enough to wish they still had oh, communism? Yeah. Definitely. When I talk to my mom and dad, they always say that it was good old times and that it 
will never be the same again. And that it was really fine. That is really remarkable. Good. And still, I think... And that's in, in Slovenia, one of the most yes, uh, blessed yes. corners of the former uh, Soviet sphere. Yes. Especially in places uh, like Slovenia, uh, the standard was pretty ca- high for such a um, pretty senseless um, socialist economy, which was, of course, unfortunately built up to a large extent on foreign debts and loans, which we still have to pay back. You're still paying your communist era Of course, loans. the ones that Tito took up and, uh, of course, built his charisma on. No one really realized that, <laughs> well, it all came at a price. But still, everyone had a very good life, very high standard of living, worked very little. As I said, you couldn't lose your job. You had all the welfare, security, pension funds, now, all of now that. Now, people must have known this. And you, do you, Were there like slogans for people about working? And uh, I mean, you don't need to work. There's no incentive. No, but people would start off with uh, working, being really hardworking, trying, giving their best. But then you would see someone sitting right next to you at the desk uh, where you're working as a clerk, let's say, and doing absolutely nothing and receiving the same paycheck year after year. And demoralize And eventually, people? exactly, it demoralizes you and the economy just goes downhill and the productivity as well. But still, in the long term, what uh, makes people think back of those times as good is especially of the generation of our parents who knew only those kinds of times. So that kind of society uh, where the state took care of you. In fact, not only did they uh, take care of you, they did not want you to think or worry about anything like where are you going to put your investments, how to take care of your pension funds, uh, health care, Even what like to that. consume. I remember in those days, everybody from the East had the same camera, the same brown camera. Yes, yes. So nowadays when there, you've got all these choices, you've got not only that one camera you can buy, you've got a hundred different cameras. You have uh, a number of mutual funds to choose from and uh, uh, health care payments, uh, mortgages, taxes. It just confuses people because they've encountered this for the first well, time and they're the, completely lost. And it's a big adjustment for Western Europeans trying to employ Eastern Europeans. They come over, they don't have the work ethic, they don't understand all the choices and so on, and it's quite frustrating. Tell me some of the... You had some little... I remember they said uh, when the governments would come and go, they'd say the uh, the musicians would change but the tune would remain the same. And you told me about a phrase. What was it about the rabbit? Yeah, we used to say that work is not a rabbit. It will not run away. So you can just easily sit down and wait. <laughs> and yes, during that time, people always had time for coffee and reading newspaper and chatting to friends uh, during your work time. It always reminds me of, a, uh, yes, time was a very relative thing. So it reminds me of an East German joke, uh, which uh, still today is often told. For example, of a man who um, once ordered a Trabant. Now, this was the only car available in eastern Germany. It was produced there. So uh, he goes to the factory, finally, after many years, gets together all the money to make a down payment for the car and make places his order. So he asks about the color of the car, what kind, what do they have, what models. So they say, well, we have white um, that's it. <laughs> so he says, fine, well, it's great. And um, uh, when can you deliver it? So uh, the guy at the factory says, well, um, what do you care? It's going to take a long time. Well, I need to know. Okay. So uh, the guy says, uh, we'll deliver it in uh, 11 years. And uh, that's when you get your car. So uh, the guy says, uh, well, can you be more specific? I need to know. Um, well, okay, 11 years and two months on, um, I don't know, June, in in June somewhere. Well, what day? And he gets really annoyed. So he says, okay, June the 2nd. But what hour? So what do you need to know? I mean, okay, June the 2nd uh, um, in 11 years um, at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. He says, no, 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 no. I have the plumber coming then. So. <laughs> oh, no. So really there was that much of a wait. Yes, yes. It was, you um, could wait 10 years literally for a car? It was, oh, yes. And I remember when I was traveling in Poland on my first time, people would take the, literally take their windshield wipers in at night with them because they were afraid to get the windshield wipers stolen because you couldn't buy new parts. Was this a frustration in your memory? Yes, that's true. These kind of things happen. But on the other hand, I want to say that actually having this small Polsky Fiat, which is a totally communistic or socialistic idea, is a beautiful thing. Now, this is the Polsky Fiat, the little Polsky Polish Fiat. Fiat. It's Polish, funny, 
funny car and right. people in the West don't believe that you can actually drive it and people fit in, but they do. That was the first car my parents had. And the idea was it's so small, it's so cheap, it's so uh, unreliable, it can break any time. So everybody can afford it because it's cheap. It's cheap. And most people could afford it. They, of course, need to wait, it, wait for it for 10 years <laughs> or maybe two years, as, as Marian said. But everybody more or less could afford it. And I remember we, we also had a joke. Actually, you need to get two. The one which you drive and the, one, the other one for spare parts. Really? Yes. I bet that was actually <laughs> true. I mean, I bet you could get your spare parts that <laughs> In way. In large parts, yes. Now, if you didn't have a car, Eastern Europe had very, very cheap public transit. And because, it's still true today. And, and that's one yes. of the – that's a heritage of the communist or socialist days that really mm-hmm. survives. It is. You can travel cheap and well on mm-hmm. city public transit. Do you have memories that when you were little of being pioneers in the different uh, local Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts? Oh, yeah, I do. And that is um, in our primary school. It was the tradition. First year of our, our primary school, when we were seven, we were accepted to the pioneers. And that was a big honor. And they pre- they were preparing us for that for like – from beginning of the school year and they would even threaten to us like you know if you don't behave you will not get accepted to the pioneers and if you wouldn't well you would have a big problem why so would you there, have a problem if you don't get accepted to the pioneers because you know other kids would know that you're not a pioneer and that was a big honor and did it help your employment prospects or getting not a really better because education? you were you were only seven years old okay and it was in the first grade and it was like you know coming to the making this big step, now I'm important. And they were giving us these ideas, you know, like um, how important we will be, how we will join the Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia, support its brotherhood and unity. And that was the words we repeated every single morning. Oh, really? Before so when I was a kid November. in schools today, the kids, I pledge allegiance to the United yes. States of America. And tell me what you did in your country. Yeah, we, we practiced that for like from September till 29th November. And it was 29th November when, we t- when it was the birthday of Yugoslavia, basically. We had to, we were kind of accepted and we needed to swear. I do solemnly swear that I will be a good pioneer, that I will respect all the things that Tito fought for, that I will respect brotherhood and unity, and that I will fight for the ideas to live in the Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia, that I will be a good pupil, that I will study hard and help others to work, and that I will also be um, loyal to my friends, to my family, and that I will respect all the countries and citizens of the world um, and live in peace. So that was what we said when we were wow. seven years old. Now you and now that was you're remembering that from the communist days in Slovenia. Yes, Marian is smiling. You were in Croatia as a little boy. Were you doing the same <laughs> same thing there? Well, um, actually, between Tina and myself, there's just one year of uh, difference in in age. And I actually, when uh, it was my turn, we didn't do that anymore. So things were changing along the way. As so Tina's well. one year older, and she re- she had a little different uh, depth That's of right. her devotion yes. to the yes. ideology. <laughs> Kasia, in Poland, did you have a similar sort of thing when you were in school? We didn't have that. But what we had at school was uh, in every classroom, there's, of course, the Polish coat of arms, which is a white eagle on a red background. And we always had the eagle with a royal crown because Poland uh, used to be a kingdom. It had a big portion of the society was uh, aristocracy. And when communists arrived, they immediately took the crown off. So this is kind of a funny story because for 50 years, our white eagle lost its crown. Now it has it back after uh, 1989. So now at schools, the children look at an eagle with a crown. And I was looking with an, uh, at the eagle, eagle without, without a crown. And uh, one of the reasons the, the communists, we didn't have this pioneer idea, is that um, Stalin always realized that Poles are very rebellious and once he will push too far and too much, he might have a big revolution in Poland. The same uh, was true for the churches. As we know in all the other countries of Soviet bloc, uh, church and, and religion was, uh, uh, how do you call it, was... Um, the church was the way to uh, express your dissent, wasn't it? 
in Poland, yes. In other countries, churches uh, used to be closed. All right. It was uh, really. But you couldn't get away with closing the church in Poland. No, right. no, no. Actually, church and practicing your religion was extremely important. In well, I Poland remember during even in Moscow. I remember going to Moscow in those days, mm-hmm. and um, in, and I went to the churches, and there were people in the churches, but there were little kids and there were old people, mm-hmm. and anybody who really wanted a, a good job or something knew that you wouldn't want to go to church. I remember in Bulgaria there was one rock concert a year offered to the young people, and it happened to coincide with Easter Mass. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the kids had to have this decision. Mm-hmm. And the government sort of set up these awful choices that they had to make. I'm talking with Kasia Derlitska from Warsaw in Poland, Tina Hiti from Slovenia, and Marian Krishkovic, who is a Croatian. And we're talking about what it was like to grow up um, before 1989 in what is now Central Europe. You remember, Americans think Eastern Europe, but that's sort of an anomaly. Uh, that's a 50-year uh, aberration caused by the Iron Curtain. And uh, most of what we think of as Eastern Europe was actually Central Europe. It was Habsburg Europe, and it just happened to have that uh, 50-year period or whatever when it was under the uh, sway of the Soviet Union. Today, once again, Eastern Europe is Central Europe. On May 1st, most of the Warsaw Pact, uh, May 1st last in uh, 2004, most of the Warsaw Pact joined the European Union. The geographical center of Europe shifted almost overnight from Belgium uh, to about the Czech Republic. And today, much of Eastern Europe, or what we call Eastern Europe, is uh, on the fast track to getting the euro and being part of the European Union. It's great to be talking with all of you. I want to talk a little more about what it was like growing up in Eastern Europe in the 1980s. Uh, did you listen to Voice of America? Did that come into your communities? Uh, we mainly listened to Radio Free Europe. Radio Free Europe. Yes. Was that an, did that have an impact on people? It did. It had a lot of uh, a great impact, especially on the, uh, let's say, uh, well, intelligentsia or people with better education. So this equipped the people who were un, uh, the underground movements to have a little bit of information so they could more effectively fight against yes, the communist yes. regime. Yes, people who belonged at that time to Solidarity Movement, which was huge at that time in wow. Poland. It, um, it was joined by about 10 million people, which literally means one-fourth of the population of Poland. It was a huge This was movement. Radio Free Europe. It was Radio Free Europe. And there was Polish division huh. run by... Um, Jan Nowak-Jeziorański, a very famous, uh, respected man who has just passed away. And it was based in London for a long time. And they would broadcast from there. And this is actually the source that it's the news source that we got in, in Poland. And of course, people had to be very, very careful when listening uh, because it was illegal. It was dangerous. It was dangerous. I remember people were very, very... Um secretive when they wanted to meet me in a lot of cases. They would slip pieces of paper in my hand and say, let's meet here at 10 o'clock or something like this. And it it seemed just fanciful to me, but actually it was frightening. Many times I was walking with somebody down the streets in uh, Bucharest in in Romania, chatting with somebody. All of a sudden, somebody else is walking with him, and all of a sudden he jumps into the hedges and he's gone because he realized somebody was on to him. More stories from Marian, Tina, and Kasia as we discuss growing up under communism in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy a protože cestujeme s Rickem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodách. Tak dáte si pivo. This was Czech and means Hi, my name is Honza, I'm from Prague and since we are traveling with Rick, we are traveling mainly through the pubs. Will you have a beer with me? Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy a protože cestujeme s Rikem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodách. Tak dáte si pivo. I'm talking with Kasia Derlitska from Warsaw in Poland, Tina Hiti from Slovenia and Marian Krišković, who is a Croatian. And we're talking about what it was like to grow up um, before 1989 in what is now Central Europe. They really had quite a powerful control on you. And there was a whole art form about this, social realism. We know what censorship is. You can't say it if it's bad. I think during the Soviet uh, control of Eastern Europe, the censorship went one step beyond that. You can't say it unless it actively supports or promotes the ideology. Is that your take on social realism? Well, in uh, 
Yes, but in Slovenia, uh, Slovenia, Croatia, again, it was quite different. Uh, since it wasn't part of uh, the Stalinist type of communism, it uh, never saw that kind of censorship. Uh, for a communist country, we had a substantial freedom of the press. And I remember growing up uh, watching all the time, it, especially Italian and Austrian TV stations. So they Yugoslavia, this is a different story. That's right. That's, again, a whole different story. So we did not feel so much. But I think uh, Stravinsky couldn't write certain songs in Russia because it's in Soviet Union because it stirred the wrong kind of feelings. Of course. This is incredible. People were pretty much oppressed in what they felt. Mm-hmm. What was your experience Well, that, in Poland, Kasia? it was a very different story. We just had two public channels. They were fully controlled by the government. The news we got there and the films, the movies, it was um, it was not very diverse. It all came from the, from the East Bloc and all the news were controlled, strictly controlled. It got even worse when we, uh, in 1981, it was uh, martial law introduced in Poland. And it was a very, very difficult, very hard time. And this was to keep people down because there was Yes, it was absolutely full control. You could not be out in the streets after 10 o'clock. You always had to carry your documents with you. Uh, People could not gather. There were checkpoints all around the city. People were thrown into prison. Solidarity went underground. So it was a very, very dark time in in our history. And, um, And there are so, so many people who remember this time very well. And, um, yeah, we just dreamed about the you, conditions that were in Yugoslavia. I think you Poles must mm-hmm. have been a particular problem for Moscow. Didn't Khrushchev have a – What did, he had a famous phrase about – it's like saddling a uh, – that was, that was Stalin's phrase that, uh, that introducing communism to Poland, to Poles, was like putting a saddle on a, a cow's back. Wow. Stalin gave you that this, compliment, really. This is what Stalin gave us. And Stalin also gave us some, some other gift. When we talk about um, socialist uh, realism, we also have to mention architecture. And one of the, let's say, most famous pieces of architecture, a great gift from Stalin to the people of Poland, was the Palace of Science and Culture, which proudly stands in the very center of Warsaw, it's a huge monster, and until today, it's the tallest building in Poland. And uh, it's a very funny creature, but creature you can find in some other capital cities of the former Soviet bloc. There are about five of those in Moscow itself. We call it Stalin Gothic, these huge buildings that tower up into the sky. Yes, you can, you can, you can call it like the Stalin Gothic, actually, yes. So Stalin gave Warsaw... A big skyscraper, and it still dominates the the. It still dominates the, the city, city and and the country, because <laughs> it's so tall. I heard yeah. that he sent people around the country, uh, architects around Poland, so they can the architects could learn about the uh, Polish culture and incorporate that into the design. Exactly. The, what was the phrase? Yes, the phrase is, it it was supposed to be socialist in substance, but Polish in its form. Nature And do the people like it? People hated it. Do they have a nickname for it? I know the answer. You know the answer. If I'm allowed to say it, I can say it. it. Well, the popular name for this structure was... Say it in Polish first. (laughs) (laughs) I have the feeling that in English it sounds better for me at least. We called it Stalin's penis. And how do you say that in Polish? Kota Stalina. Stalin's penis. So this stands like an incredible skyscraper <laughs> over the great city of Warsaw, mm-hmm. reminding the people how Russia loved the Poles. Yes. Wow. All through Eastern Europe, you've got these statues and these monuments. And today, now that the Soviet Union is gone and you guys are free, you have, um, we all have, Americans have this image of, you know, um, statues being torn down, Saddam Hussein's statue coming down. Well, the same thing happened, obviously, in every capital, every great city of Eastern Europe, tearing down these statues. They didn't melt them down. They didn't throw them away. They kept them out in the suburbs. And now there's uh, actually a park in Budapest, isn't there, mm-hmm. where they've collected all of these statues. Yeah, that's a statue park, and they have, like, a big collection of all these big, huge Stalin statues of partisans, of of communists, of Lenin, uh, Lenin of Marx and Engels. And, and the local this. versions of these guys. And local versions. But I've heard that there's also one statue of Stalin, or no, of Lenin, right here in Fremont. That's right. In Seattle, we have yeah. a statue, too. So they were on the international market. Yeah. You want to buy a cheap statue of Lenin? All of yeah. a sudden, I think there's lots of them for sale. <laughs> and what's an interesting thing is, for example, in, in well, after the fall of Yugoslavia, after we broke up, um, we started renaming our streets and squares, because everything before in Yugoslavia was named after Tito. 
Pro- propaganda. You grew up with propaganda. Everything was uh, when I when I hear the People's Republic of mm-hmm. Hungary or something like this, you just know that it's propaganda, and yeah. you have to tell people that. Are there other examples of this? Because right now in America, we've got the Clear Skies Act and the Leave No Child Behind and the I Love Trees, and we're starting to get a lot of that into our government initiatives. This. Uh, these wonderful titles that you just have to be skeptical about when they tell you this is the People's Republic of Czechoslovakia. Did you grow up with that a lot? Yes, that was present a lot. Like uh, you had the feeling everything is is shared. Everything belonged to the people and the architecture. Like we would build these huge blocks, these ap- apartment blocks. Every single flat would look the same, and it would be hundred hundred families living in this huge huge building. And the idea was like everybody has the same amount of meters. It looks all the same. You don't have to envy. We go. We have the same money. Everybody's equal. There is one class, and the best class is the working class. That's socialism, right? That's socialism. But there is a lot of nice aspects to it. For example, at the time when American women were still at home raising their children, our women were all at work. They were emancipated. There was this need. After the Second World War, there were not enough men. So communism would promote women's labor, women's voting rights, education. It was all for free. It was all available. And people felt secure. They did not have to worry about their job, sending schools to kindergarten, to school, to university. So today, Eastern Europe is part of the European Union. You've got free enterprise. The economies are fast. Yeah. Yes. Things are well, kicking. Yeah. Prices go up. Prices are going up, and you're working harder than ever. Yep. Welcome to the Western world. <laughs> oh. <laughs> is there a remnant of this socialist experiment that you all grew up under that has been defeated by capitalism that you think will survive and be incorporated into a nice synthesis where you take the extremes of both systems and come up with something that is better for people in general? I have to regretly say that we have lost a lot of positive aspects. When when we brought communism to an end, things were happening very quickly. People did not quite realize what was going on. And everything, people believed everything that was in the past was wrong, was bad, was evil. So we need to do it. The West did it. Mm. Just following blindly the way of capitalism. And what we see today, people are, became great consumers, sometimes very aggressive consumers. And we have lost a lot of uh, these positive aspects. And uh, right now, people look back and and with nostalgia, they say, oh, well, there were a lot of positive things. There were a lot of good things and they are lost. We still have free universities, free schools. But right now, people debating that we cannot afford them any longer and we need to introduce payments. So there were no no debate Mm -hmm. in the old days. There Mm -hmm. would be education. Yes. I mean, it was free from a money mm-hmm. point of view. It might be full of propaganda, but it was free education. Exactly. <laughs> In the old days, they said, our, our, after the fall, I mm-hmm. heard people say, before we had money, but nothing to buy. Now we have mm-hmm. plenty to buy, but no money. Not enough money. Not enough money. Is so we need to a- work more. So we need to get another job, a second, a third, and yeah. so on. And nobody has time. During yeah, communism, we had time. It, it happens mm-hmm. like that, that usually you would have two jobs. You're in the rat race. Yeah. You've joined the rat mm-hmm. race. Mm-hmm. And the young people are uh, thankful for this, or generally? The old people are mm-hmm. the ones who've really lost out, I think. Oh, yeah. That's the lost generation. That's young the pe- lost generation, mm-hmm. yes. Hmm. You all learned Russian as you were growing up? No. You I, didn't, because you're Yugoslavians. <laughs> I had to learn Russian when I was growing up. Do you still speak From it? From the fifth grade. Wow. Uh, do I speak it? It was such a hated subject, you know. It was almost looked upon if you liked Russian, you know? So nobody wanted to learn it. Really? <laughs> nobody. That's why <laughs> it was required and my Russian to skills learn. are not so great today. But it was required. It was obligatory and everybody had to take it. Now oh. I regret I don't remember it. <laughs> that would be nice to know it now. Mm. And also, when you're growing up, sooner or later you, you realize that this is a lot of propaganda. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. we're just worshiping mm-hmm. the teachings of Stalin or something like that. Uh, at what point did you start to question the, the system? I think I was about 10 years old, and uh, I was brought up with um, kind of a solidarity <laughs> uh, roots. My father 
was a scientist. And because he was a scientist and, 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 and worked at the university, he was allowed to go abroad from time to time to some international projects. And for a couple of years, we even lived in the Soviet Union. And I remember as a very small child, my parents, whenever they spoke in the kitchen, they would put the tap water on running so nobody could hear that because we realized that as foreigners, we had plaques all around our flat. Um, I remember learning poems about Lenin at kindergarten in Russia. And I also remember my father bringing home whenever he went to Poland and then from Poland to the Soviet Union, bringing this very small, funny books with very, very, very tiny print. And uh, and then I didn't realize what was happening with this. So today I know this was smuggling of books which were not allowed in the Soviet Union and were very, very, very tiny. And you had to there was read it with a magnifying books. glass. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Um, and then when I was about 10 back in Poland, I realized that the things they write in my school books, especially in history, are somehow very different from the stories I hear from my grandparents and parents. And and that was, I think, the time when I was uh, got very curious about it and, and started to ask questions to my parents. So what it is all about? And your parents then had to decide if they would show their true beliefs to their child who might actually unknowingly get them in trouble by talking about this at school. Yes, but fortunately it was already the, the 80s. Okay. Things were losing up in uh, Russia. It was Gorbachev with Pierestroika. Uh, Stalin, Stalin and his ideas were strongly, strongly criticized and things were kind of losing up. And, uh, and this is where I was kind of beginning to learn the truth. Because I just think it's one of the most horrible things to think of a child being bribed at school to inform on their parents. And this happened a lot during this dark age. Especially in the Soviet Union, yes. In the Soviet Union. Now, you said your family was solidarity family. Today, 15 years later, uh, are there still families in Poland that are, are sort of respected because they were courageous in the solidarity movement versus people who were less respected because they were kind of weasels and they stuck it out with the communists because they had positions of power. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely, yes, but I would not say that it is important for all the people. Today, people focus on the future more than on the past. They look forward to being in the EU. They look forward to making more money and having a better life simply, mm -hmm. enjoying the freedom, traveling, for example. Yeah. Back then, there were two worlds. I remember when I traveled in Eastern Europe, I met people from Angola and, and Cuba. Uh, I would never meet them. I didn't even know anybody from Cuba or Angola until I went to Bulgaria or Hungary, and then I would meet mm -hmm. people from the second world. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah. The blocks stuck together. That was the whole Soviet bloc. And we, we had a lot of foreign students from Arab countries. So everything that was against the West was welcome here in Poland or in other countries. And also for them, it didn't seem so poor. So a, a Cuban could afford yeah. to travel in Bulgaria, oh, yeah. but not in France. Yeah. Also, I remember there was a, a, a guy who was supposed to be like the Bob Dylan of America, which no American had ever heard of. And they, we were told that he defected from America and he chose communism. And he was touring around Eastern Europe and Russia playing as sort of a Bob Dylan mm -hmm. refugee from capitalism. Do you remember this guy? No. Okay. Probably were no. too young. Too young. <laughs> okay. It was an example of the uh, mind control that fascinated me. We were thinking at that time of how to get as soon as possible to some real chocolate. Yes. Some real chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Tina and Marianne, also, I remember when I was traveling in Yugoslavia in the old days, there were partisan families and there were nonpartisan families. Some families famous and honored because they supported Tito during the great struggle before Tito came to power. Is that a thing of the past now, or is there still a recognition that there's these kind of families and, and, the, and the enemy families? Well, it is um, still not an issue that has been completely resolved. Before, it was, um, uh, well, the people who f have fought for the liberation of Yugoslavia coinciding with being uh, later on on the winning side with the Communist Party, and uh, the people who were... Um, on the side of Germany and Italy and so on, and their families uh, who were marked during the com 50 years mm -hmm. communist period. Now, after the 50 years, it kind of a turn 
around and it uh, switched back to the people who fought for the liberation of Yugoslavia being on the communist side and with, with the bad guys. Ah. And many times uh, the others uh, being seen as the good guys and ba basically as victims of the communists. And both sides would have arguments that they're right or wrong. But uh, there is really no black and white in that uh, argument. And uh, it's... Uh, it's yeah, very complicated, and it's still because not sure how been, it's going to be. They could have been with. considered fascist sympathizers, also. Exactly. So the fascists were the ones that held back Tito. Tito takes control. Uh, those who didn't go with Tito would be discredited. Then, after communism is gone, suddenly those who oppose Tito are remembered as for their opposition to Tito rather than their fascist tendencies. Exactly. So some people just want to bury that. Don't want to bring up and stare any skeletons in the closet and forget it, move on. Mm. And this is usually the general notion for the good or for the worst. That's a constructive approach, I think. And I know in Europe right now, there's enough history gone by in Eastern Europe where they can actually deal with some of these problems now a little more directly. In Budapest, there's a wonderful new museum called the House of Terror that shows the actions and the, and the terrible actions of the secret police, both the communists and the fascists. And what's interesting to me is this museum is not just for tourists, but it's for locals because they can go in there and learn what happened during these terrible times. And the poignant thing is that a lot of the perpetrators of this injustice in their society, the secret police, the Gestapo of the Nazis or the communists for all these ages, are still out and free on the streets. And just across the street might be the uh, loved ones of people who they tortured and killed. This is a powerful sight for travelers to see when they travel through Eastern Europe. And boy, I remember when, when things were starting to fall apart, like Kasha was saying, that everybody was teaching me how to say, Ya glub glub Gorbachev, or something like this. That's Russian, or that's uh, Hungarian. I uh, love Gorbachev. I love Gorbachev. How do ya you say Ya Gorbachev. Say it again. Ya Lublu Gorbacheva. Ya glub glub Gorbacheva. Well, ya glub glub Eastern Europe, and I'm very happy for all of your countries, and I thank you for joining us. Once again, Kasia Derlitska from Warsaw in Poland, Tina Hiti from the resort of Bled in Slovenia, and Marjan Krišković, our Croatian friend. Thank you very much, and uh, nastrave. Nastrave, what does that mean? To your health. Cheers. Cheers. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.